God created man and woman in his image. They walked in perfect fellowship with God in a perfect place, surrounded by perfect things. But by believing the lie from the serpent, sin entered the world. Perfection was lost. The fellowship with God was gone. It seemed all hope was lost. But right then, amid the darkness, God spoke a word of hope. A Savior would come, born of a woman, to defeat the enemy and deliver God's people. God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Scholars refer to Genesis 3.15 as the Proto-Evangelion, or the first gospel. For the first movement of our need for rescue, God's promise was there. Before he addressed Adam and Eve, God turned to the serpent and announced that sin would not have the final say and that the schemes of the enemy would not prevail. Throughout the Old Testament, God spoke to his people about the promise and gave them things to watch for in order to recognize the Savior's coming. God revealed that the Messiah would be born in the line of David, of the tribe of Judah, and in the town of Bethlehem. He would be a man of sorrows, crushed, despised, and rejected, justifying many through what he suffered. The promised rescuer would be a light overcoming darkness, a preacher of God, good news to the poor, and one walking in the power of the Spirit. There were hints and shadows of him everywhere. God also reminded his people not to lose heart as they waited for the Savior to come. It's important to remember that God did not fulfill his promise right away. His people waited a long time. They spoke of the promised rescuer from generation to generation, enduring cycles of war, rebellion, captivity, and restoration. They watched and waited anxiously, expectantly, for God's faithfulness. We can all identify with feelings of hopelessness and helpless, especially when it comes to the weight of sin. Heavy and inescapable, we know its effects with every breath, both our own sin and that of others. Our world is, fill, is full of evidence that something is wrong and needs to be made right. The reason we celebrate Advent is because the story of the garden doesn't end with man's rebellion. God makes a promise, and as we'll see in the weeks to come, he keeps it perfectly. Though things may look, now, look dark now, we know the light is coming, so we wait and we hope. Good morning. My name is Paul. I'm one of the pastors here. Thank you, Joanne. Joanne. Golly, starting off strong here. <laughs> Sue Ann and Jerry. Uh, we can be Joanne. Uh, hey, let's do this over again. Hey, thank you guys for being here this morning. Uh, it looks like the word got out that I was preaching and a few folks took the day off, but I'm glad y'all are here. Um, I really am. Just like Oprah, I'm you're glad you're here. If you look under your seat, there's a... So, I'm just kidding. There's nothing under your seat. <laughs> no, but thank you guys, really. Thank you for reading the Advent uh, story for us this week. I, I, I do love the Advent season. Uh, for me, it's really a time to just kind of, at least weekly, take a break from just the busyness going on in our lives and focus on what we're really celebrating. Um, like I said, Advent means arrival. Uh, it's a, an appearing or a coming into place. And so we're going to take the next four weeks to talk about the Advent of Jesus, um, the arrival of the King 
what, what's your favorite thing about Christmas? When you think of Christmas, where do you like get excited about? Someone said Jesus, right answer. Uh, yeah, family. Uh, a show of hands, who puts their Christmas decorations up before Thanksgiving? Okay, okay. There's just a few of you weirdos, um, but I'm glad you're here anyways. Um, I like it because it engages all of your senses. It's, you know, the sights, the decorations, which look great. Thank you, Larissa. Uh, the smells, the things cooking. Angie's always really good about, like, having candles lit that smell like the season, that remind me of Christmas. Uh, obviously, the tastes. You know, what, what's your favorite thing? You like sugar cookies, Robin's pies, by the way. Fantastic. Yep, yep. Who are my eggnog people? Yeah. Oh, man, I'm so good. I love eggnog. Uh, the sound, you know, the Christmas music Mariah carries on everywhere. Makes you want to drive into a telephone pole. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, and, and then the feel of like the, the winter chill, just the, the coolness in the air, at least here. Uh, all that reminds me of Christmas. And it creates in me like this childhood anticipation. You know, even though Christmas Day comes and goes quickly, it's just one day, just the whole season seems to just be building in this anticipation towards a big day. And it creates such a, a sense of hope in us, doesn't it? And that's, that's what we're talking about today. We're, we're going to talk about hope. Um, you know, I, I still feel like the little kid, you know, waiting to bust into the living room on Christmas morning of the anticipation and hope. But as Christians, we get to talk about hope quite a bit differently, don't we? Um, for, for us, this Christmas celebration is really a shadow of what's really to come. We celebrate and we enjoy it, but it's, it's just a foreshadowing of something better that's coming. Uh, we're not really celebrating the fact that we're all getting fatter and more in debt. You know, that's the, kind of the side effect of it. But we're celebrating the first advent of the newborn king and what, what his birth meant to the world and that we have hope in him. So let's kind of baseline. Let's kind of start with a, a definition. What does hope mean? Uh, hope is a feeling of expectation, a desire for a certain thing to happen. Uh, it's to cherish a desire with anticipation. And so let me ask you this, and we'll come back to it. Where is your hope? It's the right answer, but we'll come back to it. Or another way to ask this, who or what are you placing your hope in? And for you English nerds, they okayed ending a sentence in a preposition, so, um, or English if you were here last week. Where are you placing your hope? What are you placing your hope in? We'll come back to that question later. So we, we often talk about the Bible as a story. Uh, it is a collection of stories, and there's all these different... And you know, sometimes, like, for, for a lot of us who grew up in the church, these, these stories are always seem to be disconnected somewhat. But the, the Bible really is a story of hope. It's one story of hope uh, that tells of ultimate hope uh, that was promised all the way back at the beginning of the Bible. Um, what, what Jerry and Sue Ann just read. i got to be slow with that. Yeah, thank you. Um, what they just read, that there was hope really in the very beginning. Hope was given. But we all know what happened right before that, that hope was lost. You know, we, we, we know the story of Adam and Eve. We went, if you're here with us through Genesis, you know that God created everything perfect, and Adam and Eve walked in perfect fellowship with God. They had everything that they needed. All they could ever hope for was right there with them, and God created them perfect. And God walked with them. It said God actually walked with them in the cool of the day. That means he was there with them. We can't really comprehend that, um, but they had God's presence with them every day. It said he walked with them in the cool of the day. But we all know what happened in Genesis 3. Here's what it says. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than 
any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate because he was a big dummy just watching everything happen. It's <clears throat> my own translation. So the serpent deceived them, convinced them that there was something better than what they already had. He convinced them that there was hope to be found somewhere else. In this case, he convinced them that there was ultimate wisdom to be found if they ate the fruit. The wisdom that God seemed to be hiding from them is what the serpent said. And then Adam's just kind of over in the corner, just kind of watching that. Are there any Monty Python fans here? Adam, all I can think of when I think of Adam is the guards at the Swamp Castle. Just kind of, just kind of grinning and smiling, watching it all. And God's like, what did I say? And Adam's like, you said not to eat of the fruit unless you or anyone else tells me I can. He's like, no, that's not what I said. And he's just smiling, watching this whole thing go down. You can see how mature my mind is here. But that's what I think of just Adam over there watching. God told him specifically, you can't eat of this fruit. But the serpent deceived them. He ate the fruit. And he broke the communion with God. It, what that means is they could no longer be in God's presence. So the, the God that was walking with them in the coolness of the day could no longer be there because sin had entered the world. It broke their communion. Hope was lost. It was lost not just for Adam and Eve, but for the entire universe. Man's rebellion had fractured everything, literally everything, not just in the garden, not just on this planet. The entire creation, the universe itself was fractured. Nothing was the way it should be, and death became a reality. Here's what it says uh, farther in Genesis 3. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it. All the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat the bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. That was the curse of death that was on them because of their rebellion. All of creation now was under this curse of death. Hope was lost. But as we just heard in the Advent reading, it was not forgotten. The communion with God... Listen, the communion that with God is written on our hearts. It's still written in creation. Uh, it's written on everyone's hearts, not just believers. Uh, but I think, you would, I think it's hard to argue that everyone knows something's wrong. Um, I hear these stories often of missionaries that uh, use the story of God to, uh, to evangelize. They don't necessarily go in and try to translate the Bible and build churches in places that have no idea what this means. They go and tell them the story of God. And they start by asking is this creation, is this world the way it should be? And almost every time, despite who the people are, where they grew up, they say, no, this is not right. This isn't the way things should be. These are unchurched areas that know that something's wrong. You know, it, it, it makes me kind of think, if, if this is all there is, if this world is all there is, if there was nothing more uh, to this life and we were just creatures evolving from one form um, to another, why is there such pain and sadness? Why do we feel sad about things? I think the fact that death hurts is a clear indicator that this world is broken. 
You could argue that the fear of death protects us. You know, we, we avoid death because we're scared of death. Uh, but r- really, if this whole survival of the fittest thing was true, wouldn't we be happy when the weak die? Wouldn't that mean we survive? But that's not the case. There's sadness and there's sorrow because we know that this world is broken. Fortunately for Adam and Eve, and fortunately for us, God didn't leave them uh, there for long. Back in Genesis 3, uh, what we just read is that God promised that he would fix what was broken. This is what he said. He said, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." What God did there is he restored hope to Adam and Eve. Hope was restored right there in the garden, right in the midst of their rebellion, right in the midst of the brokenness. It seemed all hopeless and cursed. All of creation was cursed, but hope was not gone forever. What God promised was a rescuer. He promised one that would crush the head of the serpent. What Jerry said, uh, it's a long word. The proto-evangelion is the word that they use right there where it mentions what's going to happen to the enemy Uh, Another word for that is the first gospel. That's the first whisper of a rescuer that was to be promised that would put death to death. The one who would reverse the curse, as Scott likes to say. The promise, and this promised rescuer then is echoed throughout all of the Old Testament. If you were here with us when we did the Jesus True and Better, we took passages of the Old Testament and we we talked about how those foreshadowed Jesus. Um, And we know that all through Genesis that we just went through for the last decade, Um, that God chose a people, uh, he chose Israel, and hope was kept alive through them, through God's interaction with them. And then he used prophets. If you know your Old Testament, prophets were used to speak to Israel, to tell them about the promised one who was coming. And with each new person that came on the scene for Israel, they're like, maybe this is the one that's going to reverse the curse. Maybe this is the guy. Surely it was Moses. Moses come in and he he rescues them out of Egypt. This is the guy that's going to do it. Well, he didn't do it. He screwed up. Um, he didn't cut it. And Israel's like, well, it's because we don't have a king. We need a king. And so here comes Saul. Saul's the first king. He's the guy, and he didn't last long at all. But here comes David. It's surely David is the one for us who's going to reverse the curse. I mean, he's a man after God's own heart. But all these, all these people are just sinners and just uh, jacked-up dudes like we are that God used as part of his story and part of his big plan for redemption And despite God's promises, despite what Israel knew, they still placed their hope in these other people or in a better situation. Maybe it was to be restored back to power. Uh, Maybe it was to be freed from slavery or tyranny uh, or to rule over other kingdoms. I've got uh, young kids. Uh, Has anybody ever seen the Minions movie? You know, the little Despicable Me, the little yellow guys. Uh, I think they're hilarious. But at the beginning of that movie, it shows them like trying to find their like true villain and they follow whoever. And so it's like, a dinosaur at one point. So they're following the dinosaur and he dies. Well, then here comes the caveman and they start following the caveman and then they accidentally kill him. And then it's the abominable snowman and Napoleon at one point. That's what Israel reminds me of. They're just like, all right, who's the next? This is the guy. Let's follow him until he dies or they kill him or whatever. Uh, and they just keep misplacing their hope um, just like we do. They keep misplacing their hope in, in these shadows But God was always faithful. He was always faithful to them, just like he is to us, to rein them back in, to remind them of the coming rescuer. Um, I've I've heard a pastor say before, it's like in the story of Rahab, if y'all are familiar with that story, she was 
a uh, prostitute in Jericho, and she hid the slaves from Israel. And because she hid the slaves, they told her that when we come and destroy the city, we'll save you. And do you remember what, what they told her to indicate where she was by? She hung a, a scarlet thread out her window. And so when Israel stormed the city, they knew, all right, that's Rahab. We're going to protect her because of that scarlet thread. And I've heard it said that the promise of the rescuer is like a scarlet thread that runs through the whole Old Testament, and it ends at Jesus. And this thread is just woven throughout Scripture through these promises of God, this scarlet cord that runs and ends with Jesus, connecting all of those stories to him. It's like the, the, how the Jesus Storybook Bible says that every story whispers his name. And some, it whispers louder than others. Isaiah 53 might be the, the, the best um, whisper of this coming rescuer. It says, who has believed? I'm going to read this whole chapter if you want to follow along with me. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him, esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with him his wound, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people." And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Man, what a great passage. That was 600 years before Jesus was born. Uh, I don't think it gets more clear that what this rescuer was coming to do. God was telling Israel, just like he tells us, that your hope is not found in a country. It's not found in a place. Listen, I, I love living here. You know, like Scott says all the time, I, I, I'm an American. I love being an American. Um, but our hope is not found in any political freedom uh, or liberty. Uh, that is not where our hope is found. I am thankful to be here, but our hope isn't in a place. It's a person. Another way to say that is that I think hope has been personified. I don't think. I know that hope has been personified in Jesus. The Old Testament what Isaiah was saying, it foretold of this Messiah, the Messiah to come. All of the promises of the Old Testament, all of the yeses and amens of the Old Testament are fulfilled in Jesus. And he did not come to rule the way Israel thought. Um, he did not come to rule sometimes maybe the way we think. His job was not to restore a nation back to, to prominence. That's not his job for us. It definitely was not his job for Israel. 
A lot of you probably know around Easter time, the week before Easter, we'll, do, uh, we'll celebrate Palm Sunday when Jesus rode in on a donkey and everyone's shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord, and they're waving the palm branches at him. Most of these people were, were incredibly confused on what Jesus was coming to do. They thought that this was the king coming in to overthrow Rome and that was going to restore Israel back to prominence. Uh, and they were shouting this because they were so excited for it. These are the same people that a week later murdered him. And so it's, I love the story of Jesus riding in, uh, triumphant Jesus, but most of those people were celebrating the wrong thing. Jesus was not coming to sit on an earthly throne. He was coming to fix what was lost, what was lost in the garden. Like Isaiah just said, he came to give his life for the transgressions of his people. And most of the people back then despised him for that because he wasn't coming to give them what, what they thought that they needed, what their hope really was. Church, misplacing our hope is nothing new. It's not, a, it's not an American thing. It's not a uh, millennial thing. It's not um, a white people thing, a black people thing, a Middle Eastern thing. It's everything. It's all of us, and it's been since Genesis 3, what we just read. We know our, our one true hope is anchored. We know it's anchored in Jesus. We know that Christmas is a celebration of hope coming down to us. We know that this is Jesus. He is the author and the perfecter of our faith. So I can ask the question, what do we take away from this? I mean, I think we know the answer. I just said it. Place your hope in Jesus. Jesus is our hope. But I would say it like this. Jesus is our past, present, and future hope. Here's what I mean. He's our past hope um, because of what he accomplished on the cross. That was a thing that actually happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus actually was born, he lived the perfect life, he died, he was buried, and he rose again. We also call this the gospel. Um, the gospel is a real thing that happened. It's not a fairy tale or a make-believe story. Jesus was a real person that walked this earth. He lived perfectly, he died in our place. He was the perfect sacrifice, and he rose on the third day, forever defeating sin and death. Um, his work 2,000 years ago is what saves us, Okay. It's not the prayer we prayed. It's not the person that led us in the prayer. It's not the person that told us about Jesus. Jesus' work on our behalf 2,000 years ago is what saves us. I've heard people answer the question before, when were you saved? And they answered it 2,000 years ago on Calvary, which is true. Obviously, there's a decision that we have to make to follow Jesus, but that work that Jesus did for us is the saving work for us. It is the salvific work that saves us. His past work on the cross reversed the curse. The curse of Genesis 3, the curse, the rebellion of Adam and Eve was reversed on the cross, and the relationship to the Father, to God the Father, is restored because of Jesus. We can now be in God's presence one day because of the work that Jesus did for us. Even though it was broken in the garden, Jesus has fixed it. He is our present hope also because after Jesus finished the work on the cross, we see in Scripture that he literally ascended to the Father. He rose up. People watched him lift up into the air. He literally rose up into the air. And Romans 8.34 says that he is seated at the right hand of the Father forever interceding for us. He is there right now, right in this moment, interceding on our behalf. He's at the right hand of the Father for you and for me, interceding for us. Uh, this is one of those words that we, we kind of gloss over when we read it. At least I do. I kind of gloss over what this actually means, what Jesus is actually doing for us right in this moment. Uh, and, and this isn't like spirit Jesus either. This is the physical Jesus that walked this earth, 
that was, that was crucified and that rose again, that appeared to the disciples. When he ascended to the Father, he is there now interceding on our behalf. He is fully God and he is fully human. That means he experienced all of the pain and suffering and temptations that we experienced, yet he did it without sin. And so he's there now interceding on our behalf. He understands what we're going through. And he's next to the Father saying, nope, she's mine, he's mine, I've got them covered. They believe in me, I've got them covered. He's interceding for us. And in addition to what Jesus is doing, it also says farther up in Romans 8 that the Spirit is interceding for us right in this moment. Here's what it says in Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with us with groanings too deep for words. And if you read through that, you'll notice there are no conditions on this intercession. There's no, if you ask for help, if you clean yourself up, if you come to your knees and just the brokenness, the only condition for this is that you be a believer, that you believe that Jesus died and was buried and rose for you. If you, if you have the Spirit in you, if you're a follower of Jesus, right now the Son is interceding on your behalf and the Spirit is praying for you with groanings too deep for words. The Spirit's groanings are more than we can comprehend. And so when you're, when you're lost in prayer, you're like, God, I don't, even know, I don't even know what to ask for. What Scripture says is, of course you don't. That's why the Spirit is interceding for us with these groanings that we don't even understand. It knows what we need. He knows what we need more than we do. And so He is interceding for us. And here's what's really cool. God always answers the Spirit's prayers in the affirmative. That means He always answers yes. So what the Spirit is asking on your behalf God always answers yes, because the Spirit knows the will of God, because the Spirit is God. It's God the Spirit. He always answers yes to the Spirit's prayers on our behalf, according to God's will, because He knows the will of God, because He is God. I don't know about you, that's liberating for me. That takes the pressure off to, I hope I get my prayers right. I hope I ask this just the right way. God knows we're not. We're screwed up people. We're going to fall asleep in the middle of our prayer. We're going to forget what we were even talking about. We're going to say something stupid. We're covered by the blood of Jesus who's interceding for us, and the Spirit, with groanings too deep for words, is praying on our behalf to God the Father. Right in this moment, this is happening for you and for me. The Spirit's taking care of our prayers, and God the Son is interceding on our behalf. Jesus is not our, only our past and present hope. He's also our future hope. Uh, this same Jesus that defeated death, that conquered the grave, who ascended to the Father and who is interceding for us, is going to come back and finish what he started. And so as we celebrate this holiday season of the first advent, what we're really doing is looking forward to the second advent. Yes, Jesus came and accomplished it for us, and he's going to come back, and he's going to finish what he started. Revelation 21 is one of my favorite passages, and I go there often. Uh, to, to remind myself that these pains, that the pains of this world are temporary and that there's a future hope coming. I'll put it on the screen here. Here's what it says. This is John writing uh, based on what he saw revealed to him in Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first her heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. 
Our future hope is not a place. Just like I was talking about it a minute ago. It's not a place. As good as heaven sounds, as good as it's going to be to be there, um, our hope is not a place. Uh, Our hope is to get back to what was lost in Genesis 3. And I don't mean the garden. Our hope is not a new Eden. Our ultimate hope, listen church, our ultimate hope is to be in the presence of God. Students, another way you may have heard this said, and maybe you can answer it. What is our hope in life and death? That's it. From the New City Catechism, another way to put it, our only hope in life and death is that we are not our own, but we belong body and soul both in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. Our ultimate hope is to dwell with God for eternity. Wherever that is, heaven, earth, wherever that is, and this, listen, this, on, this is only made possible through Jesus. God's not going to let us into his presence just because we feel like we lived a good life. We are only going to be allowed into the presence of God by the saving work of Jesus Christ and by trusting in his work on our behalf. It's going to be great to have no more tears where all things that are sad will become untrue. But all of that is going to be possible because we're going to be in the presence of God. This is what it says there in Genesis, uh, Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. What made the garden so great and what makes heaven so great is to be in the presence of the Lord, because that is our future hope, is to forever be there with the Father, because God the Son has made a way for us. So let me go back to the question. What is your hope placed in? Where are you placing your hope? Who or what are you placing your hope in? What is that thing that you think will finally complete you? I know right now you're going to say Jesus, because that's what we've been talking about for the last half hour. But really think, what is that thing? What are you striving for? What are, what are you longing for? Uh, you know, wealth. Is it a career? Is it a relationship? Maybe I could finally meet the one, or maybe I could finally get rid of the one. Is it kids? You know, is it your kids? Is it the success of your kids? The, uh, you know, maybe you want them to be really rich or you know, all pro baseball players like all of our kids are going to be. Um, is it personal growth? You know, maximum achievement. I, I've got to achieve my maximum potential. You know, maybe, maybe it's physical appearance. We're in church. Let's church up a little bit. Maybe it's my spirituality. Maybe it's spiritual growth. Maybe it's good behavior. Maybe it's what other people think of me. This list could literally go on for hours. Uh, And so it's going to. I'm going to keep reading these. Um, No, I mean, obviously, uh, our hope is in Jesus. And I beg you today, I beg you to place your hope in Jesus. This is the the same news for non-believers as it is for believers. As believers, our hope's in Jesus. As non-believers, our hope is in Jesus. The the message doesn't change. Uh, But anchoring our hope in Jesus changes how we live our life. It's why the Apostle Paul could say, to live as Christ and die as gain. When threatened with prison, you know, to live as Christ. When threatened with death, he said to die as gain. His hope was anchored in the finished work of Jesus and what he knew about who God was, not in his situation. As terrible as death sounds and prison sounds, our ultimate hope is found in Jesus. Our hope is in him. I'll close with these words of Jesus from John 14, 1 through, th- uh, 1 through 3. Here's what he says. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again 
and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. That is our hope, church. Let me pray.